Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. So last week we read the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Jesus told that story to warn his audience against the sins of covetousness and greed. He tells us that there is something more to life than the abundance of our possessions. Instead, in verses 22 through 34, Jesus taught his disciples to cultivate a kingdom perspective and to practice kingdom priorities. That includes trusting God as our generous provider and our loving father. It includes remembering that we are his people, his children, and his flock. And it includes focusing on our eternal reward in Christ, which no thief can steal or moth destroy. But today we pick right back up where we left off in Luke 12, beginning in verse 35. We said last week that we should not place all of our hopes in worldly wealth because it can't provide us with security, comfort, and joy in the end. But there's another reason to adopt the kingdom perspective Jesus teaches about in this chapter. This reason was briefly mentioned in the parable of the rich fool. Think back and remember... What was perhaps the rich fool's biggest mistake? His biggest mistake was that he forgot that one day he would die. And in that day, his worldly treasure would not save him. Well, this morning, Jesus elaborates on that theme. As we look closer at another parable, we're reminded that we must be ready for Christ's return. We must be ready for the day of judgment when we stand before God himself. So open up to Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can come here, those who know each other, those who don't. We can come here as siblings in Christ, regardless of how different we might be in other ways. And we can worship you together as siblings in Christ. I pray that you would watch over us as we hear from your word this morning. Some of us come in with heavy hearts and anxious minds and hurting bodies. I pray that you would... Comfort us as we need to be comforted. But I also pray that you would challenge us as we need to be challenged. Teach us as we need to be taught. Remind us of the things that we tend to forget. Lord, I pray that you would bring these things to our eyes, bring these things to our ears, and give us open hearts and open minds to hear what it is that we need to hear today. I pray that you would watch over us, help us be attentive to your word. Thank you that you've given us your word, this gift of grace, this gift of your kindness and your mercy so that we can know you so that we don't have to speculate so much about you or guess about you or even invent you in our minds, because that inevitably doesn't do you justice. 
Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word that we get to read, that we get to study. And thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the world that you've made. They all reveal who you are. Christ most chiefly reveals who you are. Thank you that we know you. As we just said in our communion meditation, we are adopted into your family thanks to the person and work of Christ. But Lord, help us not just look back to when you came 2,000 years ago, but look ahead to when you will come again. That's what we'll be doing this morning. That's what we're doing in this text. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, judgment is not exactly a popular topic these days. After all, didn't Jesus tell us himself to judge not, lest we be judged? On top of that, we live in an era that prizes inclusivity. We're taught to embrace a live and let live worldview. I mean, who are we to say if something is good or bad, true or false, right or wrong? Make those sorts of judgments. In the words of theologian, Jeff Lebowski, that's just like your opinion, man. Many prefer that our world would be one big planet fitness, a judgment-free zone. But if we take the Bible seriously as the inspired and authoritative word of God, then the reality of judgment is simply unavoidable. We can't get around it. And for what it's worth, judgment isn't just present in the Old Testament. It's consistently present in the New Testament as well. Theologian J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God that I would highly recommend. And Packer writes, People who do not actually read the Bible confidently assure us that when we move from the Old Testament to the New the theme of divine judgment fades into the background. But if we examine the New Testament, even in the most cursory way, we find at once that the Old Testament emphasis on God's action as judge, far from being reduced, is actually intensified. The entire New Testament is overshadowed by the certainty of a coming day of universal judgment. And by the problem thence arising, how may we sinners get right with God while there is still time? The New Testament looks on to the day of judgment, the day of wrath, the wrath to come, and proclaims Jesus, the divine Savior, as the divinely appointed judge. Packer goes on to say the Jesus of the New Testament, who is the world's Savior, is its judge as well. But don't take my word for it. Don't take J.I. Packer's word for it. Let's see what Jesus has to say in Luke 12, verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. 
Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, that's getting deeper and deeper into the night, second watch, third watch, then blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So what does Jesus teach us? Well, first, he teaches us to stay ready. That phrase in verse 35, dressed for action, can be literally translated as gird up your loins. Now, it's unfortunate that more modern Bible translations have left that phrase behind. One, because it's fun to say. But two, because it ties back to an important moment in biblical history. We read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. God speaking to the Israelites as they're preparing to leave Egypt. He says, in this manner, you shall eat the Passover meal. With your belt fastened, that's gird up your loins, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The Passover was God's righteous judgment on Egypt for enslaving his people. And the evening that it happens, the Israelites are told to be dressed for action. Fasten your belts, get your sandals on, gird up your loins, be ready for God's judgment. But then Jesus introduces this parable about servants waiting up for their master. In the ancient world, wedding feasts could last days at a time. On top of that, there were no cell phones. So the servants had no way of knowing exactly when to expect their master to arrive. They really had to stay ready. They had to be vigilant if they didn't want to get caught off guard. And if those servants fulfilled their duty, Jesus says, if they stayed ready and they welcomed the master when he arrived, then it would be worth it. In a surprising twist, Jesus even says that the master himself will then serve the servants. But if the servants don't fulfill their duty, if the master found them sleeping on the job, what happens then? More on that in a moment. But in the end, Jesus applies this parable to his own second coming. One day after his death and resurrection, Jesus would ascend to the Father's right hand. But when he leaves, it would not be goodbye. It would be so long. He will one day return. And like a thief in the night, it will be unexpected. So then what must his disciples do? They must be ready. 
And since Jesus has not returned yet, disciples like us must be ready as well. But how exactly do we stay ready for Jesus's return? You know, honestly, it's not that complicated. We must repent of our sin. We must believe the gospel. And we must follow Christ. Those are not the words of some fundamentalist fire and brimstone preacher on YouTube. Those are the words of Jesus himself. We see it in Mark chapter 1, verses 15 and 17. The first words that Jesus says in the gospel of Mark. Repent of your sin. Believe the gospel. And come follow me. The apostle Peter elaborates on how God's people are to be ready for Christ's return. Second Peter three is dedicated to this topic. Nearly the entire chapter focuses on the return of Christ and all the questions, all the doubts, all the concerns that come along with that. But Peter says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So how do we stay ready? Lives of holiness and godliness. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is at hand. Peter talks about heavenly bodies melting, a new heaven and a new earth. Folks, that is all judgment language. And it's all in the New Testament. We stay ready for Christ's return. We stay ready for the day of judgment by leaving sin behind, placing our faith in Christ, and following him in holiness by the power of the Spirit. But Jesus continues in Luke chapter 12, Picking up in verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, Hmm, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating 
will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. In some ways, this parable is just a continuation of the one that we read a few verses ago, rather than a new parable entirely. It's almost as though Peter interrupts Jesus with a question mid-parable, and Jesus just pretends he didn't hear him. But we'll come back to Peter's question later. And as Jesus continues the parable, he shifts his focus. Verses 35 through 40 mainly looked at those servants who were ready for their master's arrival. The ones who did what they were supposed to do. But what happens if a servant isn't ready? What we see in verses 45 and 46 that one servant does not use the master's uncertain timing as motivation to stay ready. Instead, he uses it as an excuse to be lazy, disobedient, and abusive. He's like the teenager who throws a house party while his parents are out of town. And what happens when that master returns? That servant is caught red-handed. And in words that strike us as graphic and shocking coming from the mouth of Jesus... That servant is cut in pieces. Now, like he was in verses 35 through 40, Jesus is speaking about his future return. So then why the violent imagery? This certainly is not the meek and mild caricature of Jesus that we usually expect and that we sometimes prefer. Well, for one, Jesus uses that graphic imagery because of the world that he lived in. In the ancient world, masters had that kind of authority over their servants. And the consequences for disobedience could be brutal. But on top of that, it's worth mentioning that the oversimplified, the domesticated, The watered-down images of Jesus we often assume are not very biblical. The same Jesus who serves the poor and the downtrodden says in Luke 12, 49, that he came to cast fire on the earth. The same Jesus who welcomes little children into his presence proclaims in the Gospel of John that the Father has given him the role of judge. The same Jesus who calls himself the good shepherd appears as a fearsome warrior in Revelation 19. These passages remind us to not tame Jesus. He is and will be judge over all creation. And he is not to be trifled with. And finally, perhaps Jesus uses this Shocking imagery of the servant cut in pieces. Because that's just how serious the topic of judgment really is. Jesus uses frightening words to communicate a frightening reality. To wake us up 
to get our attention. But before we move ahead, one more comment about our passage. What's the deal with verses 47 and 48? After all, that is the part that's unique to the Gospel of Luke. Well, there have been debates surrounding these verses, usually with people trying to read too much into them with regard to differing levels or differing degrees of eternal judgment. But to focus so much on that kind of speculation loses sight of the basic point of the parable. These verses drive home the universality of God's judgment. When Jesus returns, all will give account. Every disobedient servant will be punished. Whether they disobeyed out of a hardened, rebellious, and conscious sense of defiance, or whether they claim ignorance. If that sounds scary, that's because it is. The book of Romans identifies every single one of us in some way or another as a disobedient servant. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, the Apostle Paul proclaims in chapter 7, that somehow, some way, by the body and blood of Christ, these disobedient servants can be forgiven. These disobedient servants can be saved. So if we look closer, what exactly is this parable about? It's about staying ready for Christ's return. Staying ready for the day of judgment. Because one day, like a master returning from a wedding, or a thief under the cover of darkness, Jesus will return when we least expect it. And when that day comes, we must be prepared. Unlike the rich fool of last week, or the immoral servant of this week, And the only way to be prepared is to repent of our sin, believe the gospel, and follow Jesus. To be the saints that God declares us, calls us, and empowers us to be while we wait. So as we look forward to the Master's return, may we prepare ourselves. Think of all the things that we prepare for in this life. How much time, work, money, conversation, and thought do we put into planning for tests, job interviews, family visits, vacations, retirements, tax day, weddings, babies, graduations, and even our own funerals? How absurd is it that we can be so ready for those events? And don't get me wrong, those things are important. How can we be so ready for those things, but remain unprepared to face our God? Maybe it's because the day of judgment is less tangible than all the events that I just listed. Maybe it's because we've been waiting so long for Jesus to return that we start to doubt that it could possibly happen in our lifetimes. Or maybe that it will happen at all. Again, 2 Peter 3 can answer some of those questions for you. 
or maybe we're not ready because of the uncertain timing. I'm sure many of us are more productive when we have a firm deadline that we have to meet. Whatever our reasons, may this parable wake us up from our slumber. May we prepare ourselves for Christ's return. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, may we walk as children of the day rather than children of the night. Sure, we'll be surprised, but I pray that we won't be unprepared. But on top of preparing ourselves, may we also prepare others for Christ's return. Now, I'm not saying that you need to walk up to strangers on the street, poke them in the chest, and ask if they're ready to face God. We need to have these conversations with an appropriate sense of nuance and tact and compassion, probably in the context of well-established relationships. But we also shouldn't overcorrect and refuse to talk honestly about judgment. We shouldn't be so desperate to distance ourselves from our friends at Westboro Baptist Church or the confrontational college campus preacher or the guy in an overturned bucket with a megaphone that we never talk openly and honestly with non-believers about judgment. We have to talk about it. If we take these words seriously, how can we not talk about it? Imagine if you were standing on the sidewalk, having a conversation with another person who's standing in the middle of the street, and you saw an oncoming bus. How cruel would you be to not say something and watch that person get hit? Facing eternity apart from Christ is worse than any bus. So may we prepare ourselves And may we prepare others. And finally, as we wait for our master to return, be joyful. Now, why do I say that? I say that because we often view the day of judgment as an entirely negative thing. We associate it only with fear, anger, grief. And we're not totally wrong to do that. In many ways, judgment is a negative thing. And the thought of judgment falling upon fellow men and women bearing God's image ought to break our hearts. It really is a somber subject. But it's not all doom and gloom. Followers of Jesus can be joyful as we look to the day of judgment. Because it's the day we see our Lord. It's the day Satan is cast down once and for all. The day our siblings in Christ who have died will be raised. The day our fallen world is reborn. The day that sin is eradicated once and for all. Those are all things to celebrate. Those are all things to look forward to. We have reason to be joyful. As John chapter 4 verses 15 through 17 remind us. Followers of Jesus do not look forward to judgment with a sense of dread. We look forward to the day of judgment with a sense 
of confidence. Not because of who we are. Because of who Christ is. Psalms 96 and 98, which one of them we read earlier in the service. Those psalms speak of creation singing with joy at the thought of God's judgment. By faith in Christ, by his broken body and shed blood on the cross for our sins, we can face the day of judgment with joy. The day of judgment can actually be good news. Because it's the day when we finally get to see this fallen world redeemed. It's the day we finally get to see our Lord in all of his power, in all of his glory, in all of his goodness. Now, perhaps you saw earlier this week that the experts in charge of the official doomsday clock moved the hands closer to midnight than ever before. We are just 90 seconds away, everybody. Now, there are real problems in our world. There are legitimate dangers and threats to be concerned about and praying about. But the truth is that none of us really knows when the world will end, regardless of what that clock says. But we do know how it will end. And we know who will end it. Jesus will come in power and glory as king and judge. So may we be ready. May we be ready to stand before God in judgment. May we remember that our only hope in that day will be the gospel. Now, before we close, let's go back to Peter's question in verse 41. The one that Jesus didn't really directly answer, the one that we never officially answered either. Was the parable in Luke 12 just for Jesus' disciples, or was it for everybody around? On a related note, is this parable for us, here and now? The answer is yes. Those who know what to expect... Those who have heard Jesus' words, disciples then and disciples now, we will not be able to claim ignorance when he comes. In that sense, all who read this parable have a great responsibility. Much has been given to us, and much will be required of us. We must listen. We must believe. We must obey. So may we of all people, those sitting in a church on a Sunday morning, reading the Gospel of Luke, may we be ready to greet our Lord when he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that you've given us to read your word together. Even words that are shocking and frightening and convicting and challenging and make modern people like us squirm a little bit. Thank you that you have made your intentions so clear. 
is that you have told us who you are, that you've told us what you've done, and you've also told us what you will do. You will come as king. You will come as judge. And Lord, thank you that your act of judgment, as frightening as it might sound to us in so many ways, is really an act of your grace and your kindness and your mercy. Because it shows that even after our sin, you care about this world. You care about sinners like us. You care about disobedient servants. After sin, you could just leave us alone. You could just leave us to live in this terrible state of affairs in a fallen world for the rest of time and not lift a finger. But that is not what you did, and that is not what you will do. You will come as judge. You will set things right. You will cast Satan down. You will raise your saints. And you will forgive the sins of disobedient servants. You have forgiven the sins of disobedient servants through your son's body and through your son's blood. So, Lord, as we look forward to the day of judgment, help us be ready. Help us repent. Help us believe. Help us follow you. Help us live lives of holiness and godliness. Help us prepare not just ourselves, but prepare others. And Lord, even help us be joyful, knowing that this fallen world won't be fallen forever. Knowing that one day we will see you face to face when you come. Lord, help us do these things by the power of your spirit, not by our own power alone. Again, help us be prepared. Help us be ready for this day that we get to look forward to. This day that we can have confidence in because of who you are and what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us be watchful. Help us stay awake. Help us be prepared. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name.